Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Colmer Had a Dream podcast. I am here with Ruth. Hello, Ruth. How are you? All right. All right. Good morning from, from Oregon. How are you doing? Very good. Good afternoon from The Hague. All good here. It's. Uh, I'm not going to give another weather report. I feel like we do that every week. <laughs> no one's interested in our in our thoughts on the weather. Um, but I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Uh, looking forward to talking about some football, having a nice little break up in the day. Um, we're going to be talking to you today about um, some news events, some uh, some things that have popped up and are happening uh, at the moment in, in, the, in the coming week. We're then going to talk about the abuse of footballers and referees that has gone on uh, in recent times, which seems to have escalated. And finally, we're going to finish up talking about the Ryan Giggs situation and obviously how that affects Wales looking ahead to the World Cup qualifiers and even potentially up ahead to the Euros as well. Um to start off with Ruth, it was announced that there is a Wales women's camp which is going on starting today. Um, really interesting, I thought that Lauren Dykes had a, had a role to play in it as well as the, the the head of coaching for the FAW and I saw Matthew Jones, the former Wales player, um, has got a key role in the coaching as well uh, alongside Dykes. So I wondered if that was perhaps a little a look into the future of what things might be. Um, I'm, I'm not sure actually. I think using... Dave Adams, the technical director, was a kind of obvious way to have a camp without it being assumed that you were looking at a future manager, as it were. Um, and I think um, Matty Jones is—it's nice to see him in, involved. I think yeah. he's he's got more of a more of a sort of background role there than I'd appreciate. And of course, you know, why wouldn't you bring Lauren Dykes in for? For this camp so i think that using using that trio is a good way to ensure the girls have a really purposeful camp that follows the, the the kind of the norms that have been set up by the faw and the coaching team without putting anyone under the spotlight of ooh, are they in line to be the manager down the down the road um and i think it's great that i mean other than megan win it's basically the full squad that that hopefully hopefully are attending um and I think I read that they're looking at having some something else in April as well, by which point hopefully the new appointment will be in place. And, and obviously they haven't got competitive games till the autumn. So, you know, there's a bit of running time. Um, so I think it'd like to be really good for the girls to have some time together where there isn't the pressure of organising for a game and working on tactics. They can actually just work on, you know, developmental football as a group. Um, so I, I think it's a good use of the week, definitely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's the uh, the World Cup draw, I think, is on the 30th of April or something like that. So I think that's obviously they will want to have the appointment uh, completed and, and made by then. I think I was looking more at Matty Jones and, and Lauren Dykes perhaps as just being part of the coaching team. So maybe a manager comes in because obviously I know um, a lot of the coaching team left with Jane Ludlow. So I, I thought that this might be the start of kind of building up a team and they kind of put a manager on top with these coaches around them. This is an opportunity for maybe those those two to get to know the players in a different way, obviously, Lauren Dykes knows them very well, but in a, in a coaching way, I know Matty Jones has got his his A licence and I know Lauren's working towards hers as well. So I think it might be an interesting way for them to start perhaps building up a coaching staff around someone who might be coming. And I think the the deadline for the applications and when they're going to start kind of shortlisting is at the end of Feb. So you'd imagine by by March time, at least, or the start of April, the, the new person will be in place. So it'll be interesting to see if... Um, those two, Jones and Dykes, do have a, a role to play in that looking forward. Um, yes, it's the, that's in, that's interesting because a lot of coaches will will bring their own kind of team, won't they? But I think I think the um, 
the connections that Lauren, I can see it working both ways, you know, the connections that Lauren has with with this current squad, whether it's hard for her to move into a different role because of the relationships that exist or whether that's actually easier because the relationships exist. Um, I think there's, you know, that can be, that can depend a lot on people's personalities. So I, I think this is an interesting opportunity just to see the dynamic of that as well without the external pressure of of, of being part of a formal team uh, for her too. I think what you've said there about not having a game is a big part of that as well. I think that does take the pressure off as well, which is which is helpful. Speaking of not having a game, again, oh, look at that first link and I'm straight in. I didn't even say um. um oh, there, I just edit now. What an idiot. Oh, God, ruined it. We'll edit that out. Um, Gareth Bale posted on Instagram that he was fit and ready to go uh, after telling Jose that he needed a uh, a scan on, on, a, on a muscle strain he had. I found it interesting that Jose went to the to the press about this. I also found the whole whole thing interesting. Obviously, Bale then comes on and plays pretty well against Man City on the weekend. Um, it's it's a really interesting environment that, and I don't want to. You know, we I feel like we talk about Bale and the situation and whatever all the time, so I don't want to go into this too much. But I it struck me as quite a I don't know, just a weird setup, really. It's an interesting dynamic isn't it? Because I can understand from Mourinho's point of view how that, the timing of that just all seemed a bit strange. But I can also understand from Bell's point of view just being a bit cautious. If something felt tight, get it checked out, you know? Um, I don't think it's helpful when any of that is done under the public gaze uh, from I, from either party. Um, and I think I think there's right and wrong in both both sides of, of this I think you know there's there's those questions that were raised by Bale's tweet Instagram there are questions that are raised by Mourinho taking it public so you know I, I don't think I, I don't think there's much to be gained by kind of trying to dissect that I did have a did a little bit of number crunch and just because I do um on how much of the season he's actually playing because there's this there's this kind of feeling that he's not doing anything um but if you look at the minutes that he's played against the total for spurs and i i I realized i totaled everything so there may be a couple of games in this before he even actually signed for spurs but across every single game he's he's played the equivalent of 25 percent of the games and if you take out the ones where there's a there's been a declared injury like in october when he missed some of our game, some of the Wales games, for example, he's played a third of a third of the games. Now that made, although that's not ideal and you'd want him playing more. And I can understand from Spurs perspective, the amount of money they're paying, you'd want him to be in more. It was actually more playing time than I think I'd like consciously thought in my head. Um, So I think the situation might be, might not be as dire as, we perhaps think when you look at the numbers. And I think that, I mean, I, that's an interesting start. I didn't realise that, obviously. But um, the thing for me is more his form as much as a playing time. Like, mm. And I think that maybe, you know, if he is starting to get more regular minutes, you know, if that is going to happen, then obviously that's a bonus for us. And, you know, the little glimpses of quality that he showed against Man City, maybe that is something that is now going to start becoming more regular if he feels more comf- confident and comfortable. Um, 
I don't know. It's just, uh, I don't know. I, I just feel like there's always something. There's always a story going on around Gareth at the minute. And I, and I, don't, really, I don't really care for it. Um, <laughs> to, to look uh, in North Wales, the sale of Wrexham has now been completed and finalised. Um, I found some of the comments that, uh, that were doing the rounds really interesting uh, last week and, and, and uh, over the weekend as well, talking about aiming for League One football, ideally the championship if things go really well. They've already mentioned, you know, women's team and women's football up in North Wales, um, as well as their kind of inclusion um, uh, initiatives that they run. So I think it's, it's you know, it's great all the stuff they're doing and a lot of these things are you know real kind of brownie points winners as well with the fans which is obviously you know a part of what they're saying I'm sure I, I just really really hope that they kind of come through on this because it's such an exciting time for Exxon fans Agreed I think um, you know they've they've clearly been making all the right noises all, all along um, you know that's why that's why the trust voted for the for the takeover at the level that they did because the if feels like it's more than just taking on a football team it feels like it's working to become part of a you know increase the role that Wrexham have in the in the community they have an excellent um disability access program going there for example which uh, you know I, they've already reached out to and, and helped fund and and things so you know I, I think one thing I wanted to mention quickly with Dave was was the the great job that the supporters trust have done in the decade or so since they since they took over i mean the 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 team is is in is actually in a really good position i think it's one of the reasons why it was an attractive takeover for um for reynolds and mckelleny that you know the 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 club has been well positioned by the trust and and so i think you know we should acknowledge the efforts of the people that have been doing that voluntarily over over the over the last 10 years or so and and how much difference they've they've made to to the community and i you know i hope that's acknowledged going forward as well yeah i'm sure it will be i i've seen a few things that they've kind of mentioned that in there in some of the things that the the two new owners have said so I hope that, uh, like you say, I hope that that's recognised. I'm sure it will be. I'm sure there's a few Wrexham fans who probably pro- poke a few holes in some of the decisions over the years. But uh, on the whole, you can't really argue with that that they that they have done they've done a good job. And, and, and uh, as you say, volunteers, I think, is the key word in that sentence as well. Um, Wayne, while we're talking about Wrexham, I wanted to mention the late Di Davies actually because um, obviously he's he spent part of his career there. He's the first goalkeeper I remember watching in the in a Wales shirt and there was at the time was one of the few Welsh speakers in the team and and uh, you know played an important role in in on that side of the of of, of the sort of the development of of Cymru really um obviously played <clears throat> excuse me played in those quarterfinal games in in 76 against Yugoslavia um, was part of a very important away win in Hungary as part of that campaign, that, that qualifying campaign. We wouldn't have got through without those that away win in in Hungary. And I think I think I remember my dad saying it was something ridiculous, like the first time they'd been beaten in Hungary since you know since the height of the of the team from the fifties. Um, and one of my best memories of him is, do you remember last summer when we were talking about 
I can't, we we did all our favourite things, mini pods, and I can't even remember what the topic was. But I, I told you about a game that Bangor City had against Atletico. Oh yes, Madrid. I do that, yeah. yeah, he played in that. All right. So there was there was a period where he was kind of, you know, Wrexham Bangor, Wrexham late late in his career. Uh, he, so he played he played in those European games with with Bangor and had a great save in Madrid actually, um, and so that's one of my one of my sort of primary memories of him. But just a, a, a lovely quiet gentleman that just kind of did his stuff and uh, and really was a, was a kind of key at the back for that for that team. We had you know you had your much more uh, some much more vocal members of that era, you know, Yorith and Jones and people. But um, Davies was just a very sort of quiet, steady presence that I think was very was very valued by by that squad. And it it was sad news this week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very sad news. I've, I've obviously never saw him play um, and don't know huge amounts about him, but I think you can recognize a lot about someone by the tributes that came out about them this week and I think Di Davis is a perfect example of that so many people saying so many great things Neville Southall saying he was his hero and and so many uh, other kind of great memories that he's been part of as well so yeah just sad sad news and um, rest in peace Di Davis um, another seamless link talking from about one goalkeeper to another um, Wayne Hennessy made a playing return for Crystal Palace under-23s team today as their overage player. Um, obviously on his comeback from injury after injuring himself. Oh, see, I've, this is the one bit of research I didn't do. I want to say against uh, Bulgaria, but either Bulgaria or Finland. Um, and yeah, he come, he's come back a 1-0 win for him, played a full 90 minutes for, for Crystal Palace under-23s team. So it's good to see um, our goalkeeping horde are starting to return. Yes, I mean, we're, whether people will see playing time is, a, is another question, but at least if they're fit, then we've got some choices. Um, and it's it's good to see him back and, well, you know, just encouraging to see him back and capable of doing a 90-minute game. Yeah, exactly, especially ahead of obviously the games coming up in March. I think that's a big bonus, as you say, how that kind of transpires and becomes something is uh, is a story for another day, I guess. But in the short term, at least, that's great news that he's, uh, he's at least back. Um Dylan Levitt was confirmed today signing for NK Istra. I don't know if I've said that right. Um, in the Croatian First Division, a loan deal until the end of the season. I think, I mean, I'm obviously guessing, I don't know the lad, but I'm going to guess that that's obviously him wanting to go out and play football. He didn't play that much for Charlton. Um, he, kind of at the start of his loan spell, he did start a fair bit and then that kind of drifted away. So I know he wants some playing time. So you'd imagine that that's kind of with one eye on the Euros, um, him trying to make sure that he cements his place in that squad. Agreed. I mean, I, I don't think he'd be in my squad, um, but I, 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 you've got to admire him kind of rolling his sleeves up and, and working on getting playing time. And, I, you know, I'm all for some foreign experience for, for the players, even at, even at a young age. I think it's I think it's does helps with a lot of just growing up. Um, so, yeah, good luck to him. 
I mean, you say that, Ruth. I, I, I'm, I'm 36 years old, and I've, I've lived in two different countries now, and I've still not grown up. So, uh, I'm not sure. How, it's how incremental. Right it's is. incremental. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll get there soon. Um, yeah. So, uh, good news for him, and congratulations to him on that move. Hopefully, that works out when he gets some good playing time as well. Um, I just wanted to move on. Oh no, sorry. There's one more thing I wanted to say before we do move on. In fact, um, which is. We've kind of got a new website up and running. Ruth has been working tirelessly on colmanhadadream.com. So thank you for that. We've also had some great new uh, contributions, some new blogs. So if uh, there's going to be new stuff there, hopefully once or twice a week as well as our podcast. So um, if you have any interest in those blogs, Cardiff City uh, and Swansea City are the main stuff up there at the moment. But we're going to have some more on hopefully the Wrexham takeover amongst other things in the coming weeks. So keep an eye on that and go and have a look at our blogs. You can access our podcast from colmanhadadream.com as well um on to slightly uh like one of our main topics slightly darker um we wanted to talk about the abuse of footballers and referees and i, I appreciate this is not specifically wales based but i felt like it was an important thing for us to comment on i i feel like this this stuff happens all the time at the moment and it's and i just want i thought it was important that we talk about why because i i don't think it's something that should be kind of swept under the under the proverbial doormat we had um recently um a few of the manchester united players have been racially abused Wamba basaka marcus rashford uh, anthony martial um mike dean got uh, death threats for him and his family over the over the last weekend after giving thomas suchek a red card um against uh, for west ham sorry so he asked to be a fourth official rather than to be a ref this weekend equally steve bruce and his son um alex bruce said that he'd, he'd have death threats made to him it's just a, a very kind of well. It's, it's awful, obviously. That that goes without saying. Um, I just wondered what. Why do you think it's happening more at the moment? Is is it something you know to do with social media and people there need to be more accountable, or is it just kind of a, a faceless way to to get away with something and the the problem would exist with or without social media? I think the problem exists and has existed for you know look since football started. I think people have have been abused. Um, the clearly social media and the platforms give the potential for for an anonymity, which is a new a new element for this. You know, when when I don't know. Well, let's let's think about my dad's generation. If 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 they wanted to get angry about a player on the on the local team about the most they could do was write to the North Wales weekly news, you know, and that's about the extent of it, you know, and maybe have a drunken shouting match in a pub. It was about the extent of it. If, you know, and um, so for that generation, it was a very different, environment and even if you wrote to the newspaper the editor would have edited out anything abusive anyway you know um so i i don't think that the existence of people who are racist or sexist it's not as though that phenomena is new but i think i think the 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 mechanism to vocalize that is obviously new and so I think that's why there are so many question, valid questions at the minute being asked about how social media platforms address this. You know, the fact that this week 
um, I can't remember if it was Twitter or Facebook, I think it was Twitter, came out with a statement that basically amounted to, well, if someone offends often enough, we might do something about yeah. it. You know, this idea that you had to repeat, be a repeat offender, I just find, I find that offensive. You, this shouldn't be a cumulative thing. This, If you step over this line, you should, you should have to... Um, you should have to face the consequences of it, even if it's the one step over the line. I do. There's two things actually that you've said there. Um, that's on a very passive aggressive way to start that sentence. <laughs> um, yeah, there's two things you've said there. Uh, one of them is the, is the social media thing. I do find the social media thing, it bugs me a little bit in the sense that these people wouldn't be saying these horrible things if it wasn't for social media. And I know that's not what you were saying. Um, but I do find the social media thing a bit of an excuse. And I think that. Don't get me wrong, Mark Zuckerberg or whoever else it is is responsible for these things. They do need to do more. I'm not saying for a moment they don't because they definitely do. But I think you're blaming the... I don't think they're to blame. Do you know what I mean? The, 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 the root cause oh, of no, this no, no. lies I, somewhere I, else. I, do you know what I mean? I'm not saying they're to blame. I think it's given it a different dynamic. I, well, like I said, I think, the, I think the people who have are racist or abusive in whatever framework... Um, like the, they exist, and they that they would exist regardless of social media. Oh yeah, I, I think I, what's I, diff- I think what's different is the anonymity that social media has brought. No, I agree, and that, that, that's what I was saying. Really, is more that the by people saying Facebook should be the ones to do something about this, or Twitter should be the ones to do something about this. I do think means we're focusing on pointing the finger the wrong way to an extent. Um, the other thing I would I, I just want just to add to what you said is I, I do I don't think that necessarily the case of you know your dad getting angry and writing a strongly worded letter to uh, I don't know the the Wrexham Gazette or whatever is is necessarily fair because I I you know if you think about the the racist abuse that football has got you know in the seventies and eighties. And even before that, you know, bananas being thrown on the pitch at John Barnes and all that, you know, sort of stuff. I, I, I think the difference is, is not that there wasn't an outlet for it. I think at the time, it was actually almost socially acceptable to do those things. So it wasn't as outrageous, perhaps, as, as it may come across these days. Um, and that's not to excuse it. I just think that that was a, um, like a societal issue at the time. And my point is for saying that, as I don't think that societal issue has gone away. I think that has remained a steady constant. All right, no one throws a football, a banana at a football player anymore, you know, with the odd well, exception. Do. With the odd <laughs> exception, do. yeah. But they, instead of doing that, you know, like you say, the anonymity side of things then take over and you can hide behind a, a, a Twitter account or an Instagram account or something like that. Again, the reason I say that is because, not to disagree with you, because I, I, I do agree with you on the most in the most part, but more that that steady level of the societal problem still exists. And I still think that people demonstrated it in different ways, be it back in the day or now, they still demonstrate it in a way the 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 vehicle, if for want of a better expression, that they do that is now different. Do you see what I mean? Oh yeah, I don't think we disagree there, David. Well, I, I think the 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 issue is institutional and fundamental, and needs addressing in a way that is far bigger than football. Yeah, I I think the reason that it is getting more attention now is partly. A, na- a naivety that we thought 
the lid was on this and the problem was diminishing and <clears throat> the the current situation has demonstrated that clearly it isn't i think that's been i think that's been a kind of slap across the face for my generation that might have become a little complacent about addressing this you know feeling that things had progressed and clearly they haven't progressed it to the extent that i think we'd hoped um so I think I think there's two distinct issues here. There's the fundamental societal institutional setup which enables these things to carry on. You look, for example, what happened to Karen Carney when she made that remark about Leeds. It was hardly a ridiculous statement. You know, in previous seasons, they had blown up. Yeah, they hadn't yeah. been able to keep the pace going. And it's not unreasonable to think that the break for COVID was beneficial for them. I'm no, I don't think anybody would argue that um, they probably would have been promoted anyway. But I think it's an interesting question to ask. And there were other teams that it helped, you know, that came back stronger after after the break and other teams that it disadvantaged. Um but the fact that that snippet of her of her statement was shared by the Leeds official account was then backed up by Radrizani. Even some of the uh, current players backed it up. That's those are the sorts of things where I think it demonstrates that we haven't addressed the the institutional nature of, yeah. of this. Yeah. I mean, just to add to that, because um, one thing I was going to say is I do think, and again, it doesn't make it okay, but I do think part of it is not people not going to the match is, is a bigger part of it. So, for example, that was obviously said before a Leeds game. I wonder how many people would have seen that on BT Sport if they'd have gone to the match. There's however many people who'd be watching that on the pub and probably not listening to the you know, to the to the preamble on BT Sport. And then there's all those people who've gone to the match and they haven't seen it. And then people have come back and, you know, there's nothing else to talk about. And, I, and, I, and again, I'm not excusing it because everything that happened around it added fuel to the flames and was fundamentally wrong. By the same token, I do wonder how a lot of things, everyone's kind of emotions to an, to an extent are heightened at the moment because of the circumstance we find ourselves in. And again, I reiterate, I'm not excusing anything that happened or anything that was said, but I do wonder if our pre-match or our match-going routines are different. And I say that because that was the, the second question I kind of wanted to ask you is, I think when I go to the match, and I again reiterate, I don't. I, I've never racially abused someone at a match. I've never wished someone dead at a match. I've said some things I probably wouldn't say, you know, to the kids at school. But I don't. I don't think that I've said anything that has that is, you know, totally unacceptable. I do think that part of it is that at the moment and again it doesn't excuse it the problem still exists but i think if i say to someone oh you're a dick uh, you know uh, towards a player at a match that said it's gone it's disappeared in the in the kind of crowd noise if you like whereas if i've written that down and put it on twitter that has a very different look to it and again it doesn't excuse it either way but i do wonder if part of the um uh, 
the situation i guess is kind of not helping and i you know and the difficulties that a lot of people are facing at the moment is kind of heightened and, and that kind of piles it on and again i'm not excusing anything everything that was said to karen carney was wrong same with you know with the racist abuse is obviously fundamentally wrong and again i'm not excusing it i'm just saying that i wonder if we're focusing on some things that some people are saying more in the media not things that are being said to them and jumping on them more because we're not going to the match and the things you'd shout at the match disappear a lot more Does, do you know what i mean uh, yes and no. Um, it's I don't. It's not as though these issues have only arisen no. since we've been in lockdown. So I think I think the environment when we're all spending too much time on these damn screens means that there there's just um, there's just an, a sort of awareness of the environment now that perhaps there wasn't 18 months ago. And I think we're all, we're all living in such difficult times that I think it's difficult to, to imagine anything that's happening now that isn't blanketed in some way by the wider environment that COVID has put us in. But I think it's a, I think it's a relatively minor aspect of this issue. I think this issue is about, people's behavior, people's unacceptable behavior, people's unacceptable views. And how do we address that as a society? What do we do about that? As to protect the players, I think the social media platforms have a responsibility. You know, if, if you have a mechanism that can filter message x getting to player b and you're not doing that then i feel there's a responsibility there yeah but but that they're not the as you've said they're not the root cause the social media platforms are not the root cause um i do think we as a football community could be having more effect here i i think you know, player boycotts of platforms, team boycotts of platforms, supporter boycotts. And I'm not talking about, you know, getting, a, you know, a, aggressive kind of role reversal aggressive, just sort of showing the fact that they as organizations are dependent on the followers. And if followers come off the platform for, you know, even if it's just 48 hours and show we're not, you know, we're not going to stand behind this. I do think that at least gets their attention. It, it, at least, you know, that hits them in the pocket, which ultimately is where where you're going to leverage change here. Um, but I think as we keep, we keep coming back to the fact that there's two different elements to this. There's what is social media doing that, impacts this but social media is not the root cause the root cause is much more fundamental than that yeah i mean it's interesting i have two relatively anecdotal things i want to say i watched uh, this is not football related but i'm going somewhere with this i promise i watched with uh, my wife the other day the free britney uh, kind of one hour documentary um very bizarre story if you haven't watched it i'd go i'd go and suggest it where basically britney spears father um kind of owns everything at the moment i don't know whether the whether that has changed recently but he owns her estate he kind of makes all her appointments he's responsible for all her money 
and there was this campaign to free Britney. And it based around the fact that she kind of had like a, a breakdown. I, I don't know if you remember, but obviously she shaved her hair off. Um, and a lot of that was due to the paparazzi and stuff like that following her everywhere. And part of it said here that social media actually helped a lot of these people, like Britney Spears, these super famous people, because there wasn't a market for the paparazzi anymore. You didn't need a photo of Britney, you know, on a balcony because she would post take one herself and post it. So that kind of actually kept some of the paparazzi away from her and, and made her life more manageable because they could people like her could use social media to their benefit in their in their kind of personal life to an extent because it kind of calmed down their life. So I do think that's an interesting perspective. Like you were talking about the protests there where they would come mm-hmm. off the platforms. I, I do think the flip side to that is that I, I think that players do benefit from that. In a, in a way, indirectly, and, I, and you know, I'm not saying that they're kind of having that moral dilemma, dilemma at night, but I do think that there is an element of social media which, the you know, where they would possibly argue that the the good stuff outweighs the bad. And again, I reiterate, I'm not making excuses for anyone who says any of these things. It's completely unacceptable. But I'm saying that, you know, if you were going to be harassed by cameras all the time, 24/7, and, and you know, people taking photos through your bushes, then I do think relatively that they and and you know footballers, celebrities, whoever kind of use the the social media to the to their advantage as well. And again, I'm not saying that excuses anything because it definitely doesn't. Um, I just wanted to kind of put that out there because I think that's an interesting balancing point. The second thing, go on. No, I was just going to say it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're all using these platforms and we all find benefits in yeah. using these these platforms. So like most things in life it's it's not black and white yeah. by any means um and the second thing was again i feel like i have to keep reiterating i'm not uh <laughs> you know i'm not condoning anything i think is absolutely appalling i'm just i guess trying to play devil's advocate and trying to look at both sides of the coin a little bit um the second thing i wanted to say i watched the my second anecdotal sorry i watched the test and if i don't know if you've watched it ruth but i would <laughs> recommend it to anyone it's a fantastic uh TV series about what happened to the Australian cricket team after Steve Smith was caught kind of sandpapering a, a ball basically to gain an advantage if you're not a, if you're not a cricket fan um, and I found it really interesting because when Steve Smith came back into the fold for the Australian cricket team um, his first few games were in England in the for the uh, England and Wales actually I should say for the Cricket World Cup and then for the Ashes and he got absolute dogs abuse and when they kind of said this, Justin Langer, who's the manager, uh, coach, head coach, whatever, said, I think a lot of the stuff that was said to him was out of order. And at one point, you can hear someone calling Steve Smith, apologies in advance if you're young, that I, but I am about to swear, a fat ginger bastard. Now, is that acceptable? I mean, it's not a nice thing to say, but that he chose to cheat, and I'm not saying that one thing <laughs> means that the other is okay. The reason I say this is because, obviously, Justin Lang said, as I said, it was totally unacceptable. And I found it a really interesting concept because at what point does something become unacceptable in that sense? Because to me, all right, call him a fat ginger bastard. That's not nice. I mean, pe- people have called me a fat beardy bastard <laughs> before now. So, you know, I, it's not, you know... It's not nice, but it's not the end of the world. I, I, the reason I mention that is I, I'm just intrigued as well to know at what point do we think that the abuse is, it, where is the line in that, especially in, in a sporting arena, in a stadium and, and you know, whatever else it, that, that, that kind of goes with that. 
that's that's defined by the person that's on the receiving end always for me if 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 smith is offended by that then it's offensive yeah. it doesn't matter what the rest of us think okay. um the I, I watched the same documentary and i can't remember if it was in that if it's in the documentary if it's just something i read at, at the time but when he came back i think they were in south africa when the incident happened didn't yeah. they? and when they came back to australia smith said that he the worst part was the fact that he had to look his parents in the eye and he put his parents in the position where their son had cheated and he the most difficult thing for him to reconcile was leaving in leaving his parents in the position where people thought that they'd raised a man that was a cheat and he found it hardest to face his parents and he, and the actions that he'd done and there was a i think that's a really interesting way to look at your your own actions is you know if if the, if i do x and mum or dad found out i do x what would what would be the what would be the not just their reaction but what would be the impact yeah. on them what would it say about us as a family? There was a really interesting documentary that I think it was Upworthy did, but don't quote me on that, where there was two two female journalists who'd got abuse online about, piece, about pieces they'd written that then morphed into abuse about them. And two men who they were just volunteers i don't know if they were actors or what but they were just volunteering they basically sat the woman and the man together the man took the woman's phone and read the abusive comments to her can right. you, am i can you picture that all right now obviously she'd already read them she know it wasn't you know it wasn't like it was that was the shock moment the shock moment was how hard those men found it to vocalize what was on the screen yeah to actually say those words to that woman and they and they, they weren't their words they were just read you know they were just yeah. reading them for the experiment um and i do think there's a difference in what people are prepared to put on the screen and what people are prepared to vocalize and i think if we approached what we write closer to what we're actually prepared to say to someone's face and i'm stating the obvious i'm not stating anything that people don't know here um i do think it changes your perspective and i think it gives it humanizes actions and then i think i think we are better people when we humanize our actions no i think that's a great great way to say it and i and i saw a similar sort of experiment if that's what you want to call it um on a tv show when we were in America, actually talking about talking about race, and someone who had someone who had had these horrible things about her had to well not had to but chose to to highlight the the issues and highlight the situation, kind of said them out loud, and I, and it's you're so right when you see them on a phone screen or a computer screen, they're offensive, but like you say, it, it is a very very different thing when someone says them out loud, and I was having a chat in in a WhatsApp group I'm in, and someone said. Um, 
like one of the tweets that was aimed at Steve Bruce was something along the lines of, I hope he gets COVID. And that was the one that Alex Bruce's son kind of mentioned on TalkSport. And someone said, and I, I don't blame this person or I'm critical of them, it was like a throwaway comment, which is like, you know, relatively is that that bad? And someone else in the group came back and said, imagine that someone had said to your dad or about your dad, mm. I hope you die of COVID or I hope you get COVID. You know, for the fundamental reason that they're not very good at their job, when you actually put it in that black and white a term and that black and white a context. And I think just to kind of round this sort of section off, from my perspective anyway, I've played, you know, I've said a lot of devil's advocate things here because I'm, I'm intrigued about the, the situation and the role in it. But the reality of the situation is that all of this, and I keep saying stuff because I, I guess in, even like when, when you're saying it, it's not stuff, it's abuse. All of this abuse is so unacceptable and when you humanize it and put it into any sort of real life context it's it's really fucking hard to take and you know i'm not comparing what someone has said to mike dean or aaron wambasaka to anything that has happened to me or you but i don't know about you but i've had people you know say some fairly unpleasant things online about me and our podcast and what I've written in a blog or whatever and that's just because of my you know views on Welsh football it's not it's not important it's not a big deal but I found that you know you know you just think Christ have these people got not, nothing better to do with their time than to kind of slag me off but like you say and that's just completely small fry compared to everyone else when you put it in that context of what they must be going through having these you know Mike Dean getting death threats to him and his family that's terrifying and whichever way you dress this up, whichever way you want to try and find a reason or, or, or something to blame for this, fundamentally, yes, social media has a lot to do. And I think social media, you made that the point of if someone types this word in, they should stop it, get into that player. I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, but by the same token, we should be doing more to kind of uh, question this and, and and shine a spotlight on it because it is absolutely horrific and it is negatively affecting people's lives and at the end of the day we all love football but it is it is just football and i think that you know this also needs to be looked at through the the, the prism of reality and, and and i feel like at the moment we're not in that yeah i mean there's we've as you said we've talked about this in in the sports context but this is life this is real life um and i think the fact that any human being can feel empowered to abuse a different human being in whatever means that happens that's wrong it has to be called out and we have to work at, on educating folks so it does that doesn't happen it's just it's just a non-starter and i think until we can address it educationally then what we're seeing on social media is just a symptom of not addressing it at the root cause. I could not agree more. Okay, so to move on and back to Welsh football-specific issues, um, we want to talk a little bit about Ryan Giggs. It's not a very light podcast, actually, this evening, is it? Um, I just want to start this by saying that we are not condoning or skipping over anything here, but we are just looking at this purely from a football perspective. Um, this is not going to be a, a conversation on what we think may or may not have happened. Um, and anything that we mention about uh, Ryan Giggs' kind of 
case is anything factual that we have, which is, is very limited. We All we know is that he's been arrested and, and that's all we will be referring to. Again, like we're not skipping over anything. We recognise the seriousness of, of any potential situation, but we are just looking at this from a football perspective. Um, his bail date, Ruth, was set for the 1st of Feb, but that looks like that has been bumped. Um, all we know at the moment in reality, in kind of legal sense, is that it's with the Crown Prosecution Service. They'll be deciding uh, at a hearing, which well, well, which should have been on the 1st of Feb, but has now been moved. Um, if there's a case to answer, um, that will obviously be happening on whatever the new date is. Uh, he was arrested. We don't know what for. Um, and obviously, if the Crown Prosecution Service decide that there is a case to be answered, that will obviously progress from that point onwards. Um, just to obviously, you know, we want to we want to talk about the football side of things. Um, but I know you have some some kind of legal digging that you have done, which might kind of broaden our spectrum of knowledge on the situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I should be glad to say I don't didn't know the first thing about how bail and investigations and the CPS yeah. operated and the and the kind of timelines on this. So I just did a little bit of digging to understand it more for myself. So, according to the statement that the Greater Manchester Police made back in early November, the the arrest was on suspicion of section 47 assault and section 39 common assault and and then he was bailed bail is renewed every 28 days from then on however once the case is passed to the crown prosecution service and Giggs's case was passed to the cps on january 22nd then the bail hearings basically just go on hold there are no further bail hearings once the case is with the CPS. So that bail hearing that we were anticipating for early February just evaporated into the ether once the CPS have the file. Right. So then what I looked at is what sort of timeline from receipt of a case is typical for the C CPS to make a decision. Now, obviously, the numbers are difficult to gauge at the minute because COVID is affecting everything. Um, but the the numbers I, f I, the most recent numbers I could find were for last summer. So the summer of 2020, the like the mid, the quarter that kind of went across the summer months. And obviously, although that wasn't the height of the COVID problems, it was still kind of COVID impacted. Yeah. And at that point, on average, the CPS were taking 30 days to make a decision to go, you know, sort of publicly make a decision on a case. Right. Some, some types of cases took more, some types of cases took less, but on average it was 30 days. So if, if you assume that that's still a reasonable average at the moment, the case went to them on January 22nd. So you'd, kind of expect some sort of decision by the end of February. For the types of circumstances that we're looking at, the CPS on average charges are, actually decides to charge in about three quarters of those filings. Right. Um, so that's the kind of framework. So on that basis, I can see how the FAW are kind of sort of 
hoping is the wrong word, but are, are anticipating perhaps that by the end of this month, they would at least have an answer on whether he's facing charges or not. Right. For me, I'm just wondering, are we at the point now where the FAW kind of need to do something? Has too much time passed without anything happening? You know, we're a month away from the, the squad being announced, you know, give or take it's the 15th of Feb today. Um, I appreciate it's obviously contractually not easy, but I wonder if they need to have an honest and open discussion with Giggs and make a decision to move forward in one way or the other and say they're either going to stick by him until the end of this or say look mate time's time and he and he needs to walk or am I just being a bit too kind of am I simplifying things too much there I, I think you're, you're simplifying just because the situation is incredibly complicated you know he he has not been formally charged with anything he may not be formally charged with anything um and then the FAW are in a, a situation where, you know, there's been an investigation, but there's no charges and they and they move forward with their manager. They also have, I feel there's a sort of responsibility as an employer to your employee as well under these under these circumstances. Yeah, and that's fair. you know, you should you should let the process take its course before you make any decisions as an employer. Um However, there are practical, as you've said, there are genuine sort of practical considerations here. We've got our last, well, obviously the Albania game has been sorted in, but basically certainly our last kind of major squad session with any games prior to the Euros is, is this little window in, in March. And we've got some very crucial World Cup qualifying games within it. And so I think the uncertainty is is clearly nothing but a, nothing but a disadvantage and you know it's nothing but problematic um given given the present circumstances i suspect the faw are trying to hang on perhaps until the end of this month early march and see if there is any movement in one direction or another yeah. uh so that they can actually then make some sort of definite decision uh, I do think, I mean, I'm, I mentioned in a blog that I wrote, I do feel they're between a rock and a hard place. I, I, you can't help but feel for them. Um, they've been operating so well as an organisation recently that, you know, they don't, regardless of everything else, you feel unfortunate for them that they're trying to work through this, yeah. this quagmire. Um, the, my, my concern in the, is that we're, we're just we're going to kind of because nobody can make a decision we're just going to keep limping along in in this indecision mode and i don't think we can you can get out of it i think i think the faw is kind of stuck in this indecision mode um at the moment uh, i think if it get like you say if it gets to early march and nothing's moved then I think there may there may be a point when the FAW has to have a yeah, conversation with gigs it. and say, yeah. you know, let's let's just call it a six month sabbatical or something, but let's at least you know put this in a box yeah. and we've got to move forward in a different way. I mean, for me, I mean, we're, we're trying to talk about this from a for a football perspective. I, I I often compare us in a in a roundabout way to Greece. Greece obviously had a great Euro two thousand and four, one Euro two thousand and four, and obviously we didn't win, but we went a long way. They qualified for every tournament after that, apart from World Cup 2006, ironically. But um, 
up until then, after up until 2014, sorry, they qualified for everything, Euros and World Cup, and then kind of had a slide. And what they did was they kind of let the the, the first team kind of percolate, I guess, kind of grow older and didn't do much to replace them and kind of move the squad and the situation on. And, you know, as we look now, they're currently second, or they were second in League C in the Nations League. They haven't qualified since for anything since 2014. And I kind of see us in a similar vein to that, and I don't want us to kind of trickle along. I think this is a great opportunity for Welsh football to get in, develop something, keep building it, and, and, and regularly qualify for tournaments. And I feel like that that has to start with a World Cup qualification tournament. And this is obviously, you know, potentially the last time for your Bales um, to, to qualify for a World Cup. So I, I feel like the focus has to be on this, you know, now. I agree. I mean, there may be a case that what happens in March is actually more hap- more important than what happens in June, ironically, uh, because the the momentum to keep qualifying for tournaments is so, is so important and, fun- and fundamental to to the progress that the t- the two competitive games in in March, ultimately, in terms of our sort of trajectory and and direction, may have more impact than. Than what happens in the summer? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, um, I mean, I, I just looking forward. I, what's your view if the CPS decide there's a case to answer, and this can continue longer again? Is that the point? Therefore, you think the FAW just need to say, right, enough's enough. We need to, we need to move on from this. I think at that point, you you can say, you know, Giggs wants to concentrate on the case. Um, we. His attention needs to be there. Our attention needs to be on the football, you know. And and even if you call it an interim arrangement at that moment, or I mean, I would hope if that's if that happens, that Giggs would resign. Actually, yeah. if if it becomes a court case, um, but I think that at least gives a marker for people to decide. It gives them a, a, a kind of. A, a point, a date point where they have to make some sort of decision because there is, there has been a decision from the CPS. Um, I think the difficulty at the minute is how long do you wait until there is a decision from the CPS? I mean, that, to be honest, brings me to to what I think is an important point. I mean, we're looking forward to the Euros, obviously. Um, I think there's just so many knock-on impact effects of this. Like, Lee Williams asked us today what players would make a late run to the Euro squad. And I and I and I said back to him, <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that because I, we just don't know what situation room. When you kind of put it in that context, that's that's crazy, really. Um, so I, I do wonder if, you know, at, at a point, rightly or wrongly, and regardless of guilt or assumed guilt or whether found guilty or whatever, that Ryan Giggs needs to have a look at this and, and recognise this is perhaps bigger than him. I, I, my gut feeling is that I feel like he should resign now regardless because of the time this is taking and the impact this is having i feel like this is bigger than him um and i and i feel like it's also he's also putting the faw in a in a very very difficult position i mean i've I mentioned in one of our questions to you i'm not sure that i'm like i, I said is this you know leaving a stain on the faw and that, and that sounds very very harsh because i don't think it's of their own doing and it's certainly not intentional of course but i do feel like Ryan Giggs and Ryan Giggs alone is putting everyone else in a very difficult situation and I wonder if you know he is also the person that can exit himself from this situation for the benefit of of everyone else I don't I mean I don't disagree with that um 
you know, from a just moving on point of view, if he'd resigned on November 4th, we'd have, we'd have moved on. Uh, but equally, I don't, you know, he's obviously the closest he's made to any sort of statement about this is through his lawyers and making the point that he, he doesn't feel there are any charges to face and et cetera, et cetera. So on that basis, he shouldn't have to resign. Um, so I, there, are, there are no easy answers here, David. It's, it's just it's, com- it's coming to a head because of those March games and the importance of those March games. Um, and in fairness, Rob Page did an excellent job in in November. And if, if that's the model we have in March, I haven't got any real kind of reason to be arguing against that. It's just if that's the model in March, I think you have to make the statement that that's going to be what's happening in the summer as well. Exactly. Because I don't I don't think it's fair to, to be switching and changing between the arrangements. And there's a knock-on effect there of Albert Stoivenberg. He was supposed to be with us until the Euros. And I, as I understand, he's still kind of going to do that. But I think he was doing that under the under the impression that it would be with Giggs. Um, obviously, if Giggs isn't there, does that mean he's not there? Do we need another number two? Well, how does this... I mean, there, that's why I say the resign thing, because he's entitled to not resign. You know, like you said, he's saying he's done nothing wrong. And, and if that's what he's saying, then we have no reason to disbelieve him. Um, but this is getting to a point now. It's not even about the right or wrongs for him as much as it is what is best for the team and if if he is kind of being wrongly accused if that's the case and there's not a case to answer then whilst it's unfortunate for him I still think he has to resign because we're at a point now where this is not good for anyone there's so many different things involved here there's so much at stake and it's bigger than him he doesn't need the money you know if, if it comes out that he's not guilty then he can still get another job further down the line because he can rely on what he's done with Wales, uh, you know, and and the 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 credit he's gleaned from that. I, I just, I don't know. I, I'm I feel like I'm just going round in circles a little bit here. Um, I do want to ask one more thing in relation to all of this is that you and I, I think, have, I think we've been quite fair with Ryan Giggs uh, on Coleman Had a Dream. We've kind of criticised him when he's needed criticism. We were fairly open, I think, in what we thought about him before he got the job. And, and regardless of this incident, I still maintain, as I did from the start and have all along, that I don't think he's a very good human being because of everything that's happened previously. Um, however, on, on a footballing side of things, he has earned some credit. You know, he's qualified us for the Euros. He's, you know, he's brought forward... Um, brought obviously Kiefer Moore into the fold. Levi Griffiths asked how much credit should he get in the bank for the for the players he's brought in, such as, as, as Kiefer Moore. Does that does that affect, do you think, our outlook on this? I mean I think I think it affects it from a footballing point of view because as things were going, all things being equal, looking at the position we were in in October Prior to prior to any incident, the trajectory seemed good. We were we were off to the Euros. There was no reason at that point to be questioning his role as the manager coach. You know, I think twelve months earlier there were some questions about how he was embedding in and the and the rate of changes and all of those sorts of things. But that that settled down and, and things seemed to be progressing well and obviously qualifying made a huge 
huge difference to that. So I don't think there is any kind of push here for him to be out of the role just from a footballing point of view. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why the FAW is in a particularly difficult situation because it's all hinging on what, if anything, the, the CPS case. decides to yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an almost impossible situation for them. And I, like I say, I, I feel really bad for them because they're in a... They're ultimately in a lose-lose situation there, aren't they? I mean, you know, I, I mentioned having a stain on them. I, obviously, I, th- I think that sounded more aggressive. But now I've actually said it out loud than I meant it to because obviously it's not of their doing. And I'm not being critical of the FAW in this. I, I don't think there's anything they can do. Their hands are completely tied. It is just such a difficult situation. Um, I don't really think we've got much else to add to that uh, unless I've missed anything, Ruth. No, I think it's just, it is, it is it's clearly coming to a head, I think something is going to happen before those before those March into in, internationals. As much because whatever pattern, as we as we said already, whatever pattern is in place for March really needs to be the pattern that's in place for June. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously we've got the Euros, the the the, the games that are going on ahead of that, um, the friendlies, the the qualifiers. There's just there's just so much going on, and I feel like. It, one way or the other, in my view anyway, it needs to be sorted now ahead of the these March games. And then after that, you just kind of, you take it as it is and, you know, you kind of live with your decision one way or the other, is is, is my view. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think there's going to have to be a decision. Yeah. And, you, you know, you feel for all the parties because there isn't there isn't a, a good way. Yeah. Um, there's no but, win here, is there? No, there's no there's no win for anybody. Exactly. Uh, there's a whole you know there's a whole load of people affected as we as we said at the beginning. Um, but the the timeline is such that we're this is coming to a head. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. And what has been, by our standards, a fairly heavy podcast. Um, <laughs> thank you for listening. If you're still an hour in, I, we, rec- we 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 appreciate uh, you still joining us. Um, Please have a look at the Coleman Had a Dream website, which is colemanhadadream.com, where you can see our blogs and podcasts, uh, including this one. Um, We will hopefully be back next week. And in the meantime, have a good week. Look after yourselves. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.